0: We're in the middle of a a road trip through the Bible, working our way through the 66 books of the Bible in one calendar year, and it might seem a little odd that we are considering the book of Nehemiah on Easter Sunday. Uh, We could have broke from our pattern, but we're finding in our Route 66 study that uh, all of the scriptures point to Christ, and it's pretty easy to just drop into any part of the the Bible and... uh, And and, and be directed to him. And Ezra and Nehemiah are no exception. Matter of fact, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, provide a unique perspective on Jesus' resurrection. When they tell us about the reconstruction of the temple there in Jerusalem. This massive project that was undertaken. And uh, Jesus used this very imagery or analogy to talk about his resurrection. John chapter 2 The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you are going to raise it in three days? This is an audacious claim, right? The first temple built by Solomon took seven years. And Solomon had every resource at his disposal, didn't he? I mean, uh, but it was still it was a huge project. And then when Zerubbabel came back during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, it took at least fifteen years for the temple to be reconstructed. And now Herod, in the time of Jesus, Herod had been working on that temple for forty-six years. Again, sparing no expense, it was just a huge project. And so how could Jesus say that if you tear down this temple, that he would build it again in three days? Well, of course, Jesus was not talking about that temple made of stone. He was talking about the temple of his body. He went on to say the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken it's so really fascinating what Jesus does here. I mean, obviously, he, he says, I'm the consummate temple. Right? The, the temple was a place where, you, where a person would go to meet with God. And in Jesus, deity and humanity were brought together. Weren't they? I mean, he truly was the temple, the place where we encounter God. And so he makes this great claim, and he really predicts his resurrection, he says, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again in three days. And he did. He rose from the grave after those three days. So uh, really, Jesus was claiming something even more impressive than what they thought he was claiming. <laughs> there's a lot of people that can restore broken down buildings, right? It's an art in itself, and there was a lot of work involved, but there's only one person who can rebuild Uh, a body who can bring someone back from the grave, and that's Jesus. So uh, they thought what he was saying was incredulous, and they didn't even understand the half of it. But a wonderful picture here, as we think about Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the temple, it really does give us some unique insights into Jesus and his resurrection. Well, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally a single volume divided in... uh, in, in later centuries. Um, but these books together describe Israel's return from exile. And it happened in stages. Um, Zerubbabel would have been the first to come back uh, from, from exile, and he focused on the temple itself. So he helped lay the foundation for the temple, and he was very instrumental in helping to restore the worship of the nation and the sacrificial system. And then about 60 years later, uh, Ezra came uh, back from, Ezra, from exile. And he brought a, a small group with him as well. And he really focused not on the temple itself, but on the people. Ezra was a priest, and he was a teacher of the law. He was well-versed in the law. He wanted to instruct the people how to walk in God's ways. He needed, the, the people themselves needed to be rebuilt And then about 13, 14 years after that comes Nehemiah. And he was going to rebuild the the actual physical walls of the city and restore civic life to the city, order to the city itself. And then nestled in there between Zerubbabel and Ezra in those 60 years is the account of Esther, how God preserved the people there in exile. So, um... uh, Ezra and Nehemiah really capture God's redeeming, restoring, rebuilding grace. Okay, I think one of the just the overarching themes is that God is faithful to his covenant promises. And even though the people had persisted in rebellion for hundreds of years, God had to send them into exile, still he did not give up on them. He could have kicked them, we would have kicked them to the curb. Uh, God did not. Uh, he He is a He is a covenant keeping God, as uh, Sam mentioned in his testimony. You know He came to believe that God will do what God has said he will do he will He will be true to his promises, even when we are not true to our promises and that 's a just a wonderful reminder for sinners like you and I uh, who persist in sin we we never reach the end of god's of god 's grace there are no Reclamation projects that are too far gone, uh, God is able to restore. He, he brings beauty out of the rubble. He brings life out of the grave. Uh, this is the, the, really at the heart, the message here of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to do a brief survey of Nehemiah. Uh, consider the book and Nehemiah's mission, specifically that of rebuilding the wall. But then I want to, at the, the, the close, point us to Nehemiah's true legacy i think if i would ask you what is nehemiah known for what did he do we'd say he rebuilt the wall but there are actually four specific places where nehemiah himself tells us what he wants to be remembered for and it has nothing to do with the wall (laughs) okay so let's look at an overview and then we'll kind of zero in on what uh, nehemiah's true legacy is So the reconstruction of the wall, chapters 1 through 7. Nehemiah first hears a disturbing report. We read about this in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So Nehemiah, again, is living back in Babylon, in Susa, the the palace of the king of Persia. And he's hearing a report about what's happening in Jerusalem. His brother, who had been living in Jerusalem, comes and visits him. And uh, he's he's asking for information, and he receives this very disturbing report. An unwalled city in the ancient world was a pitiful sight, a desperate sight. Uh, I like this analogy here in Proverbs 25. A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. So a, a person without self-control is open to any and every temptation, right? They, they, are, they are going to fall for every trick in Satan's book. They're going to find themselves in a world of hurt. And it's kind of like a city without walls, right? Any band of soldiers that happens to come by can take whatever they want. Uh, this is the this is the plight of a wallless city. We find uh, a fitting response here from Nehemiah chapter one verse four. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, "Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments." Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses Who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah is overcome with grief, and his instinctive reaction is to go to the Lord. That's a great reaction, by the way. He recognizes that only God can do something about this situation. And consider his prayer. He prayed fervently with mourning and fasting. It wasn't a casual prayer, right? He went without food as a sign as, uh, of, of his desperation. Uh, he prayed humbly with an acknowledgment of sin, uh, not only confessing the sins of the people, but also confessing his own sin right along with them. He prayed confidently He claimed the very promises of God there in verse 8. He actually reminds God, God, remember the promises you made. You promised to send us into exile if we sinned, but you also promised that if we would turn to you, that you would restore us to the land. And I'm claiming that promise today, God. Please restore us. And he prayed very specifically. He had a plan in mind. He was going to talk to the king. He was the cupbearer. Which meant the king trusted him implicitly. He had a unique opportunity to bring his concern to the king. And so he says to the Lord, give me success before this man. This is the most powerful man on the face of the earth in the known world. And God, unless you change his heart, (laughs) uh, this is not going to go well. (laughs) But he brought a very specific request, a bold request to the Lord. Why was Nehemiah so troubled about Jerusalem? Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. It was nearly 1,700 miles away. His brother had been there. He had some vested interest in the city, maybe because of family connections. But it's clear that there was more to it than that. Nehemiah's prayer gives us some insight he understood that the condition of Jerusalem was a reminder of their sin as a people. That they were in the situation they were in. They were in exile because of their sin. And so the, the, the ongoing struggles of Jerusalem were a reminder of their sin. And, and Nehemiah also knew that God had determined to show up there in Jerusalem. It was the city where God had chosen to place his name. This is where God was going to carry out his great redemptive plan. There were promises attached to this city. Notice this prophecy from the prophet Daniel. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. So Daniel was writing in the midst of the exile. And he said, the city of Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. And notice what he attaches to that that promise. The coming of the Anointed One. The Messiah. The Deliverer. The long-awaited Savior of Israel. It was tied to Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah longed to see the city restored. He understood that their hope... As God's people was centered in that city. The stage is now set for the coming of the Messiah. I mentioned to you that uh, Ezra and Nehemiah really conclude the history of the Old Testament. There's lots of other books of poetry and we're going to read about the prophets who prophesied during this time. But Ezra and Nehemiah bring us uh, to a place where Israel is back in the land. And the stage is now set for the coming of the Messiah. That's really the next thing on the calendar. So Nehemiah knows all of this. And this is, wh- this is why his heart is heavy for the city. And then he makes uh, a bold ask. Uh, Nehemiah waited four months before putting his plan in motion. He was not procrastinating. He was, pro- he was praying and he was planning. And by the way, those two are not mutually exclusive. We ought to do both. We ought to pray, and we ought to plan, and uh, I think Nehemiah was very shrewd. We see, of course, a lot of great leadership principles out of Nehemiah, uh, just the ways that he uh, led the people, and, and um, even how he brings his request to the king here, I think, is notable. He waited for a time when the king was in a good mood and had a full glass of wine in his hand. Uh, The text actually is quite specific that the queen happened to be there at this particular time. Uh, Maybe Nehemiah knew that the queen would soften the king's countenance uh, as he would bring his request. Nehemiah was very subtle in how he raised the issue. Matter of fact, he didn't say anything. Uh, he, He simply allowed his face to be a little bit clouded. Uh, to convey a bit of discouragement, uh, something that was out of character for Nehemiah. And uh, the king actually asked Nehemiah, what's wrong? And ultimately asked Nehemiah, what can I do for you? (laughs) Beach ball, (laughs) right? Here's here's the opportunity. So Nehemiah was very, very shrewd in how he approached it, very prayerful. Matter of fact, it says here that uh, he had he'd already been praying. We have his, one of his prayers recorded there in chapter 1. But it says, when, when the king asked him, what can I do for you? We're told that Nehemiah prayed. We're not told what he said. <laughs> Help me, Lord. <laughs> uh, here we go. <laughs> uh, send me with your blessing. Give me words to say. Whatever he muttered under his breath. <laughs> but he went prayerfully. He communicated uh, with great Grace. He said, let the king live forever. If it pleases the king, uh, he, he was very gracious in his approach. But when Nehemiah did speak, when he actually uh, extended his request, it was bold and audacious. Three things specifically Nehemiah asked for. Will you allow me to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Will you give me leave from my job? Which was an important job in the ancient world. You didn't just have anybody serve as your cupbearer to see if there was poison in your drink, right? It needed to be someone that you trusted implicitly. So will you allow me to, will you let me leave my post? Uh, Will you provide me with official letters to assure safe conduct? Will you authorize my journey so that whoever I encounter will know that I come with the authority of the king? and perhaps most audacious of all, will you underwrite the project? Will you pay for it? Will you line up all the timber that is needed for me to rebuild the gates of the city? And God was with Nehemiah, and the king granted these requests. In chapter 2, verse 11, into chapter 3, we see what I'm calling a team effort. Here's actually now boots on the ground. Nehemiah arrives there in Jerusalem, and and, uh, he he does an assessment. matter of fact, he goes out at night. He doesn't want to kind of get everyone's hopes up. He wants to have a good handle on what he's dealing with here. So he goes out at night secretly and uh, makes a circle of the city and assesses the wall, tries to figure out what the challenges are going to be, what the logistics are. Uh, He also engages in some type of, I'm going to call it consultation, uh, he draws together the Jewish leaders who were living there in Jerusalem. Remember, ne- Nehemiah's new. He just has shown up. He just rolled in the night before. And, and he perhaps knows that if he comes in and tries to take, you know, take the lead here, some of the others are going to resent him for it. So he draws them in on this conversation and essentially says, let, let us build together. You know, whatever we do, we're going to have to all be working at it together. This is too big for any one of us. So he endeared himself to the leaders there. And then there was a process of delegation in chapter three, where they they parceled out forty different work details. Each family or extended family uh, was given a section of the wall, and I love this little diagram uh, just because of the colors. Right, it gives you a little outline of the wall uh, around Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time. And each of those colors represents a separate family unit, a separate work assignment that was given. So uh, they they needed everybody's contributions. Some of the sections of the wall were longer than others. Uh, Some were in more uh, greater disrepair than others. Uh, But they, they, they plotted out those assignments. The average length of a work assignment was 250 feet. Roughly the length of a football field. That's a long distance, right, to build a wall. Uh, but it gets worse because the wall, the average depth of the wall or width of the wall was 15 feet. So you're not just putting, you know, a cinder block. You know, you're, you're, you're creating a 15-foot wide wall that on average was about 40 feet tall. So taller than the peak of the auditorium. So you, you, you work together to get one of these big rocks uh, you know, here at, at about the two-foot level. That's one thing, right? <laughs> but then you start thinking about <laughs> you know, how, 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 how do we get it up there and all that was involved in that. So it was a, it was a huge, huge task and it required a well-coordinated team effort. There were certainly obstacles along the way. Uh, Nehemiah had to deal with persistent and widespread opposition. Matter of fact, there's four characters that are identified uh, specifically. Uh, Sanbalat. There's a great name. For those who are expecting little ones, this might be a name you want to set aside there. Sanbalat. San for short, right? I mean, it's got everything. Uh, he, He was a Horonite. Uh, from Samaria to the north of Jerusalem. He was one of the political opponents. Uh, there was uh, Tobiah, the Ammonite. He was from the, the, uh, the, the west, across the, the Jordan River from Jerusalem. There was Geshem, the Arab, who would have been from south of Jerusalem. And then there was uh, the Ashdodites. They're mentioned in chapter 4. Uh, those were the Philistine peoples who lived to the west along the Mediterranean Sea. And so literally, from every direction, he had opponents. Israel was a main uh, trade route, from Egypt in the south up to Syria in the north, right along the Mediterranean, and everyone wanted a piece of the action, right? And they were not happy that the, Israel, the, the Jewish people had come back to lay claim to Jerusalem. So uh, certainly, uh, these individuals were causing all sorts of trouble, and it ranged from some measure of ridicule, right? They're making fun of them. You're never going to do this. That was great. You got that stone there, but what about the one? How high are you going to go? I mean, even a fox, if he climbed up on this wall, you know, they're just trying to demoralize the workers. They, the workers knew the immensity of the task. They knew this was a, a fool's errand, <laughs> and the enemies were reminding them of that. You're never going to be able to complete this. And then there were overt threats. Uh, at one point, we're told that uh, Nehemiah required the people to stay in the city. They couldn't go back out to their homes in the outlying areas. They needed to stay there to protect themselves. And they needed to sleep with their clothes on and with a sword by their bed. And even when they would work, eventually Nehemiah said, Okay, half of you uh, keep your sword with you, and half of you, you know, continue to work in, in, in building the wall. I mean, that must have been demoralizing too. You know? now, we're, now our work time, it's, everything's taking twice as long. <laughs> But they were having to deal with these, with these threats. Discouragement. In fact, it says when they were about halfway finished, uh, they started looking at the remaining rubble and their, their spirit began to, to wane within them, right? Uh, the immensity of the task. It just seems like the rocks went on forever. And uh, that's the way our schedule is, right? Pull out your calendar. Your calendar's waiting for you, by the way, for tomorrow. And there's certain things that just... There's just no end to the obligations to the things that are calling for your attention, right? And that just the just that persistent, um, the persistent demands can lead to discouragement. There's division. Uh, probably more significant than the external opposition was the division that took place among the people, and then what I call duplicity in chapter six. Sanballat and Geshem and Tobiah, they employ a series of underhanded strategies to discredit Nehemiah. It's one thing to have a frontal attack. It's another thing to have somebody talking about you behind your back, right? Slandering you, uh, trying to create a lot of uh, red tape and bureaucracy to kind of smuck things up along the way. Uh, They're trying to lure Nehemiah away. Come over here. Let's talk. Let's negotiate over here. When their real intent was to kill him. You know, they, they just all of these little subtle games that they were playing with him that were part of the obstacles. But finally, the project was completed in, amazingly, in 52 days. Chapter 6, verse 16. Uh, commentators have trouble believing, they think that must be an error in the text. Well,. Nehemiah's enemies couldn't believe it either. <laughs> they said clearly this was, this was God helping them because th- this could never have been accomplished in this amount of time. Just an amazing accomplishment with God's help. There's a season of organization there in chapter 7 where Nehemiah appoints civic leaders and he conducted a census of the city's residents. Uh, just to make sure everyone was accounted for and the city and the civic life was organized. So that's the the restoration of the wall, kind of the nuts and the bolts of what we typically associate with Nehemiah. And then there was the restoration of the people. This is actually number two in your outline, the restoration of the people. There was a renewal of the covenant in chapter 8. To read just these opening verses here, actually Ezra comes back on the scene here. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries, so Ezra came first and instructed in the law. Then comes Nehemiah, but their, their, their work is intertwined here. So Ezra's back in the forefront as uh, he teaches the law. Chapter 8, verse 1, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. So we're talking about a four or maybe a six-hour worship service. We're going to be here for about an hour and 15 minutes, right? We're tracking right on here. How would you like to go to a four or six-hour worship service? Zane. Zane was back there in the back going, in the 9.30 service, right? That was like, no, man, I can't imagine that. No padded padded chairs, right? Hot sun, uh, no flavored coffee, and the people actually asked for this. They, they came to Ezra and said, please read us the law. I think what a wonderful perspective. Here they had been in exile, cut off from the temple, from the proper worship of the Lord. And now they're able to worship the Lord together and they, they, they see it for what it is. Do, do we see it for, do we see God's word for what it is? Sometimes in the midst of our familiarity, we just lose sight of how amazing it is that God has spoken into the fog and confusion and the death and the dysfunction of our lives. He's given us his life-giving words. What role does the scriptures have in your life? Parents, what is your plan to grow your kids up to hear and understand the word of God? Is it a priority? Is it important as academics and sports and leisure pursuits? Is it valued in your life and in your home? We're actually told that the people, when Ezra started reading, the people stood. I, I, maybe it's just the way my mind worked. I'm like, did they stand all four or six hours? <laughs> you know, but they, they stood out of respect for the reading of God's, of God's Word. So there's this formal kind of ceremony that happens there, and actually the names of the people Uh, who were there that day, are recorded. They recommitted themselves to the Lord as they stood there at the temple and heard the law. And then, yeah, then the obedience to the covenant. Chapters 11 to 13, uh, we move on from the ceremony and we just see how the people uh, respond to the word of God. And it's pretty rough. (laughs) Sins are being exposed and there's areas uh, that need to be corrected and But the the people are learning what it is to live according to God's life-giving word. So that's sort of the the, the quick overview. Now I mentioned that um, Nehemiah has a, a greater legacy. I believe he wants to have a greater legacy than we sometimes give him. He identified four episodes in his life that he felt were particularly significant. And after each one, he prayed, Remember me with favor, O God. In other words, remember this this action that I've taken, God. This is what he wanted to be remembered for. Most importantly, he wanted to be remembered for by God or before God. So I want to trace those briefly as we draw to a close this morning. Nehemiah worked to restore their unity, the unity of the people. Back in chapter 5, We read here, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. So here's that internal division. They're in the midst of building the wall. There's all this external stuff going on. But now there's internal stuff. They're turning on each other. Uh, Most of the people building the wall did not live in Jerusalem. They lived in outlying areas. They had farms. They had a life. They had to make a living, right? They had to feed their families. And there came a point where Nehemiah said, you're all going to have to stay in the city. No one can go home because we're under attack here. And so here it is. It's July through September. It's the harvest season. They're sitting in Jerusalem while their crops are rotting in the fields. How are they going to pay their mortgage? How are they going to feed their families? Right. So, so many of them were sacrificing a great deal to continue in the work. And other of the Jewish people were profiting from this whole thing. They were wealthier, uh, so they were extending loans to their fellow Jews and charging them exorbitant interest. Uh, They thought this was just really a a great thing. (laughs) And uh, Nehemiah was so mad, (laughs) he said, look, we have all got to sacrifice here. Uh, Stop charging interest, you know, let's take care of each other. And he drew the people together. And it wasn't just his words, but also his actions. Notice chapter 5, verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the early governors, earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All of my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. So Nehemiah did not benefit or or profit off of this work. Matter of fact, even the stipend that he was given, he didn't claim it. So he led the way. In calling the people to unity, and as we come here to the end of this section, verse 19 of chapter 5, Nehemiah says, remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. So he wanted to be known for his role in drawing the people together in unity. Number two, he worked to restore their support for the worship of the Lord. Chapter 13. He says here in verse 10, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. Actually here in chapter 13, we learn that Nehemiah had gone back to Babylon for a very short time, like maybe two or three years. And then he comes back and he finds that things are in disarray again. The the things in the temple are not functioning properly. Where are the Levites? They're supposed to be doing these things in the temple. Come to find out, uh, the people of Israel had not been supporting the Levites like they were supposed to. The people were supposed to give a tithe, 10% of their income, and in that way to support the temple workers. And they hadn't done that, so the Levites had gone off scrounging for food. (laughs) They they had left their posts. And the, the worship of the people had suffered. And so Nehemiah uh, invests in this, he confronts this dynamic, he charges the people to support the workers. Malachi was uh, a prophet during the time of Nehemiah, and he speaks to this very thing, their neglect of the tithe. Uh, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. God says, that, that essentially, that money, that tithe is mine. It's rightfully mine, and you've not given it to me. You've not honored me in that way. So, so Nehemiah is dealing with the same type of thing, and he says there at the close of that section in verse 14, Remember me for this, my God. Nehemiah also worked to restore a pattern of Sabbath rest. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 15, uh, he found that the Jewish people were working on the Sabbath day and they were also allowing foreigners to come in and conduct business on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah confronted them. He said, what is this evil thing that you are doing? And he goes on to make a shocking Declaration. He says that you've just spent the last hundred plus years in exile, specifically because of your disregard for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was important. It was important to God that His people rested, and the Sabbath communicated something very powerful when it was uh, when it was given uh, to the to the Jewish people. They They reflected on the creation account, right? For in six days God created the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day he rested and so he hallowed the Sabbath day. The the, the Sabbath, one day of rest out of seven was a reminder that God was the creator and I'm not. It's a way of humbling yourself before God. And the people had pridefully disregarded the sabbath rest and so nehemiah addresses this and again in verse 22 the end of that verse remember me for this also my god and show mercy to me according to your great love god i want to be remembered for this i want this to be my legacy that i called the people back to a proper orientation towards you in regards to the sabbath and then finally he worked to restore religious purity religious purity Beginning of verse 23. uh, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Uh, They had intermarried with the people around them. And again, we talked about this last week, but the issue is not interracial marriage. We have lots of great examples of interracial marriage in the scriptures. The issue here is interreligious marriage. It's marrying people who worship other gods, and inevitably will lead us away from the worship of the one true God. And so he confronted this in no uncertain terms. I love verse twenty-five. He says, "I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair." Whoo! He was hot. This was a big deal. And he went through and said, "This is how we end. This is one of the main reasons we ended up in exile." was because of this this is what led us even from solomon and all of his wives who worshiped other gods this is how we got going down this road and so he called for religious purity we're to live as god's distinct people so many lessons for our day paul unpacked that when he said we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers right So Nehemiah, again, at the close here of the book, says, remember me with favor, my God. This was another thing that Nehemiah wanted to be remembered for. So Nehemiah wanted to be remembered for his role in rebuilding, but not simply rebuilding the wall. He was involved in rebuilding the people and calling them back to a proper orientation to God. A couple of uh, gospel glimpses. Nehemiah, Nehemiah himself portrays Christ in his ministry of restoration. He gives up his high position. By the way, being a cupbearer was a high position. That was a perk of a job. He gave up his high position in order to identify with the plight of his people and to act on their behalf. A great picture of Christ. And Jesus is the new temple, the place where God and humanity come together. So, so much in Ezra and Nehemiah centers on the restoration of the temple and the proper worship of God that people could meet with God now. And uh, this, again, points us ahead to Jesus as the, the greater temple.